0: Hello, and welcome to episode 93 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland, Andrew Brocas From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokis. And yes, you did hear me correctly, episode 93. We're taking you back in time today to 2014 when my former co-host, Nate Mavis, and I interviewed Andrew Seidman, perhaps better known as Beluga Whale, In 2014, uh, there were a few episodes that came out um, when the Thinking Poker podcast was actually part of the Poker News podcast feed, which means that those episodes were not released on the normal Thinking Poker feed that you're hearing this on now, and those episodes have mostly not been available online for a long time. We have the ownership of those, uh, just didn't have the actual files. Fortunately, Russ Fox, who was one of our first guests on the show and also has been a longtime listener, did have all of our old episodes uh, downloaded and saved, including those episodes that were on the Poker News feed. So he was good enough to share those with me, and I've been releasing them from time to time when... I didn't have an episode to share with you otherwise, which I'm saying I here because uh, I'm the one who's mostly responsible for scheduling uh, guests and arranging times for us to record. And I've been slacking on that a little bit, so I don't want Carlos to take the blame there. This is on me, and I am making it up to you by sharing this long-lost episode from 2014, where Nate and I interview Andrew Seidman. In more recent news, some of you may have heard on the previous episode, this podcast is now sponsored by g t o wizard and g t o Wizard just released a bunch of new content so what it is is a place where you can go and look up a bunch of pre solved spots for uh, i mean truly thousands of situations um every possible flop, many different bet sizes, many different race sizes. Different stack sizes in tournaments, different stack sizes in cash games, different rake structures with straddles, with limpers. They've recently added uh, things, this is scenarios that ac- account for ICM, that account for people having different stack sizes at the table, which is huge. So there's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous resource of something that we're proud to be working with. And that, I mean, I'm already using it. Personally, for, for my own study purposes, but that you will you hear us using more and more on this show and also on Thinking Poker Daily to help us better answer your questions and, and our own questions as well. Speaking of Thinking Poker Daily, which is our Patreon show where we release daily strategy segments, our patrons... We are going to be giving two free starter memberships, one-month starter memberships to GTO Wizard to randomly selected patrons each episode. One of those will come from all the patrons at large across all the tiers. One of them will be chosen just from the people in our Super Knit tier. Our winners from last episode are Aaron Leibovitz and Greg Thomas. Both of you guys should have emails and or patreon messages from carlos with uh, information about what we'll need from you to get you set up at gto wizard and we will be choosing two new random people in about a week so now is the time to go sign up for our patreon if you haven't already and you will be eligible to win those memberships and it's also i mean everybody wins (laughs) in that you get strategy segments from us every day 10 at least 10 minutes typically it's more like 15 minutes of carlos and me just pure strategy none of this yakety yak yak like i'm doing right now Uh, just pure strategy answering a question theory question or hand submitted by our patrons and you get those three to five days a week depending on which tier you are in you can sign up for that and you'll automatically be entered to win the um, starter membership at gto wizard as well Sign up for that at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily. Okay, please enjoy the 2014 interview with Andrew Seidman.
1: Danger is stealing in as relapse comes up above the den It's hard to know.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Thinking Poker podcast in Somerville, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis and with me from Catonsville, Maryland is Andrew Andrew (laughs) Thomas. How are you?
0: I'm good. I am in Catonsville, Maryland and uh, I am tonight actually the, the night that we're recording this. We are one hour away from the grand opening of the new Horseshoe Casino in downtown Baltimore. Um, I'm not going to go to that tonight. I think it's going to be kind of a clusterfuck, um, but I may check it out. Well, I'm probably going to look on the Bravo and see what kinds of games are going tonight to see whether it's worth heading by tomorrow night.
2: Uh, All right. So I think, poker just follows you around, huh?
0: Yeah. I, I think the expectation is that um, Maryland Live is going to continue to be the place where the biggest games are. Um, that's, that's kind of the scuttlebutt. Um, the the room at horseshoe is about half the size of the the room at maryland live um they do have slightly uh, higher caps so i think the 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 two five game at the horseshoe is a one thousand dollar cap and the 510 is a 2500 hundred dollar cap and that's 502k respectively at maryland live um the rake is a bit higher at horseshoe they have mississippi straddles at horseshoe which um, I don't necessarily think it's a positive thing, although I guess it is if people don't really know how to do them correctly.
2: Yeah. It can be bad for the health of the game, but it's often good for, for a good player.
0: Yeah, that's so I I think getting in early at Horseshoe might be worthwhile if they have some reasonably sized games there. And I am kinda of curious to check it out anyway. So I think there's there's a decent chance uh, I'll go there tomorrow night. So thank you, Nate, for agreeing to do this recording tonight.
2: <laughs> well uh you, you owe us a trip report, I think.
0: Yeah. I I will be happy to give one. Um, I also feel like this would be an opportune time to update some comments that I believe I made about Maryland Life before on the show. And um, some of my early experiences there, it seemed, and and I'd heard some rumors about this even before I got there, about them doing kind of a a poor job of filling empty seats and having problems with people, uh, just kind of jumping the line and and taking seats and dealers not really verifying that that was actually the person who was supposed to come over from the wait list or from the the must move or whatever. And uh, I will say, Things have been running a lot more smoothly there of late. Um, I've been playing there more more frequently, and in particular, I saw a player who tried to do that, who who took a seat when he wasn't called for it, who was um, you know, moved all the way down to the bottom of the list. As sort of, uh, I mean, it wasn't technically a punishment because they didn't have like proof that he did it intentionally but it seemed likely to me that he did it intentionally that it wasn't just a misunderstanding and you know I guess they didn't like accuse him of uh of wrongdoing per se but they did say that that was what was going to have to happen so it was good for me to see them uh, actually take action on that because it does seem it does seem like something that had been a problem there at some point but um, I, I will say that my my recent experiences at Maryland Life have been very positive
2: Ah, very good. And uh, you're still doing batter, battle with uh, Christian Harder and, and people like that.
0: No, he actually doesn't seem to be playing that much. I've never run into him except for at that tournament. Um, I think they just don't have they they don't really have games bigger than ten twenty five very often. Um, and I guess, I don't know if it's if it's that that's too small for Christian or if he's just more interested in playing tournaments. But uh, yeah, he's, he's not there that much. Yeah. In fact, a, a lot of the people who I had kind of heard were playing a lot at, at Maryland, and I think maybe they used to, but um, like, I, I haven't run into Tony Gregg. I haven't run into um, the world champion.
2: Greg <laughs> Merson. Greg
0: Merson. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the like real Maryland superstars I have not run
2: into. I see, but but it does sound like it's a, a small player pool, and, and when when we talk about hands, you often seem to know a lot about the players you're playing
0: against. The, the 1025 is definitely a small player pool. It's it, it's mostly regulars. There, there's a few um, regulars who are not professionals, uh, and the 510, there are a fair number of people who are there often enough that I recognize them. But it's liquid enough that like on a Friday night, it's not uncommon for them to have three 510 games going.
2: Do you like the feeling of, of being in games with small player pools?
0: As long as I'm better than the <laughs> player pool. I mean it like it was really nice in Pittsburgh because I knew um I mean A because I was I was the best, I think, of the the regulars in that pool the, they were mostly non professionals. They were entertaining people, they were friendly people in like once once you were in with them, they were they were friendly anyway. Right. Um, so it got to the point where I kind of felt like getting paid to hang out and play poker with my friends in a somewhat informal setting, which was, which was pretty nice. Um, so, I mean, that, that was really my only, and now I guess a little bit Maryland live, I'm getting to know, you know, I'm, I'm getting to be like a pseudo reg there playing there like two to three times a week. Um, so, but I mean, those are really my only two experiences of having like a, a local card room and maybe I'll eventually establish a similar sort of dynamic at, uh, at Lucky Chances, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed it. At, it, it, I mean, if you when you spend that much time there, it's nice to know the people or enjoy the people that you're you're playing with more frequently. And for me, anyway, it makes me feel more comfortable. Some people might prefer playing against strangers. I don't know. But.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I I like the feeling, and I, I enjoy when there's a, a quasi home game feel to it. And uh, I've, uh, with maybe a couple exceptions, when when I've been playing games with small player pools, I've. I found it enjoyable I like yeah I like the feeling of it uh, good so so Maryland live is is moving up in the world sort of as <laughs> you you think they're doing a better job so that's that's good
0: yeah and uh, we actually have a strategy hand coming to us today from um, someone who I met at Maryland live and I think this hand even occurred on, on the day that I met him but uh, we were both waiting for tables and he recognized me and came over and introduced himself um, and uh, this Strategy Hand, as always, is brought to us by Tournament Poker Edge, and uh, there's good news coming from Tournament Poker Edge, which is that I am going to be producing videos more frequently for them, and Nate Mavis is going to have some videos going up as well. So that's more Thinking Poker Quality strategy content that will be available exclusively from Tournament Poker Edge. $30 a month is going to get you access to their library of hundreds of videos, but I'm going to be producing a new series every month, so you might want to go ahead and save yourself 16% by signing up for a full year. If you aren't a member already, point your browser to tournamentpokeredge.com and sign up today.
2: Well, this is good motivation to actually sit down and make those videos, I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I confirmed with, um, with with the folks over there that, uh, that that you were going to do that. I suppose I could have confirmed with you as well, but
2: <laughs> I thought I'm, this I'm, might be I'm, a good way to light a fire under your ass. I want to see these videos. I'm, I'm a little late. I'm a little late. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to admit that. I'm going to apologize to Derek and all the good people. I'm... I, I'm a little bit late, not that late, but a little bit late. But I'm gonna do it, and and I'm looking forward to it. And it's uh, it's a little bit humbling. I've never made videos before. Um, yeah, I've written some articles, but this is. Uh... I thought
0: you made videos for card card runners.
2: No, I I, I worked uh, in a different capacity for them a while back. I've never I've never made videos before, so this is a uh, this is pretty affirming. I feel
0: maybe it's video debut.
2: Yeah, yeah, I feel. Um... Yeah, it's very affirming. <laughs> uh, good, 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 good.
0: Uh, so this hand comes to us from Steve. Hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. Uh, Steve says that is, he was playing in a generally uh, quite passive 1-2 no limit table. In fact, he estimated that um, that he was making roughly half of the preflop raises although he was definitely playing fewer hands overall than most of his opponents he says um i'm not actually getting that out of line but my image is pretty terrible as i'm down about 500 and have run bad in hands that have gone to showdown so people probably see me as wilder than i actually am we're just jump
2: in here and, Mm -hmm? and say that i never know what people mean when they say their image is bad or i guess i know what they mean but i i still choke on it i still have a hard time like processing it
0: um, i think it makes a little more sense to me in with with having lost money specifically you know, sometimes people talk about a bad image just like they've been playing a lot of hands but i think the, the fact of like if you're playing a lot of hands and also losing a lot that does tend to be a sort of like fishy like people are sort of gunning for you as a player they're going to take money from maybe even as someone who sort of overplays hands or, or puts money in the pot light the, the, yeah. this is the context where it makes the most sense to me
2: yeah so i think I often don't quite know. I think people often mean it's an image that is bad for me. Like, it's, oh, it's right. something that won't let me do what I want to be doing. And I think often it means, like, I can't bluff enough. Um, and and sometimes I think it means, like, my opponents think I'm a bad player and I don't like that. <laughs> <It's> so, <laughs> um, and I think it's important to distinguish those things, right? Uh, and, and it's also, yeah, I, I guess... It seems to me to be uh, an, un- an unhelpful, usually, uh, piece of terminology. So, so we think that Steve means that uh, he has a, uh, an image of being a loose, sticky, bad player. Is that? Yeah, spewy, maybe. Yeah, spewy, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. my guess
0: from, from this paragraph. But I agree that there are better adjectives to use than, than bad or terrible.
2: Yeah, yeah, good. And and, and even also for good, like, I I usually don't know whether people (laughs) mean that, like, it'll let them accomplish what they want to accomplish, which is often not what they should want to accomplish, uh, or whether it means that, like, their opponents respect their games, and that makes them happy. Um, It's, anyway, um, just something to think about. Anyway, I interrupted. Go ahead.
0: Uh, So the table is playing six-handed. Effective stacks are about $300. One of the tighter players limps under the gun. I am under the gun one with king six of clubs. Normally I'd fold this, but given how weak the table has been, I think I can often see a flop for cheap and everyone at the table is fairly deep. The smallest stack is $250. And it's important to point out here, although he says under the gun one, if we're six handed, that's actually going to be the hijack, um, which makes this a little less bad than it sounds. Although I'm still not sure I'm a fan.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I once a tight player limps, then there are hands that dominate you in there, and just a good range in there with you. Uh, if you raise, you're going to be putting money in against um, against a tougher range. I, yeah, I think I think from fundamentals, it's a it's a fold. If you think you can see the flop for free, or if you think you can see the flop for two dollars a lot, then I would call two dollars a lot. <laughs> like, uh, it I, sounds like that is what he thought. Okay, then then I like the call. Then that's good. You have a suited king and position on the type player, and you're deep enough, and suited kings play pretty well in these games. Um, unless the rake is really high, then I think I'm okay with it. But I, you don't I, like it.
0: I, I think we're looking at a, a 10% rake maxed out at $5, plus a $1 bad beat drop.
2: Uh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess I think it's close. I guess I think it's close. I I agree that
0: it's close. I I mean, I think I kind of want stacks to be a bit deeper than this, um, especially for a 1-2 game to make this profitable. Um, Like with four or $500 stacks, I would certainly do it. Um, I think with a weaker player limping in, I, I wouldn't mind raising I think with a tight player limping in and still having two players who have position on you, plus the blinds, even even in a tight game, I still think you're going to see a raise 10% of the time behind you.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I guess... I mean, one can only write so much in an email to podcast at thinkingpoker dot net. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would like to know more about what kind of type player this is. Uh, there are there are tight players who really like to actually overraise with hands like king queen. It's pretty interesting. They'll they'll limp a lot of pocket pairs, and then they'll make like pretty large raises with like ace queen and king jack. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's, I mean, I can guess why, but it's not entirely clear. So like different type players will have very different limping profiles here. Um, some of them will have like a lot of Ace Ten, and and pocket pairs. Others will have a lot of like hands that dominate you, and it would be good to know uh, which kind you're up against. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, um, I mean, folding can't be bad, and limping can be. So <laughs> how about we fold, right?
0: <laughs> well, I think limping can't be too bad, as you said, which is what our hero ends up doing. The cutoff folds. And unfortunately, the button makes it $12. Both of the blinds and the under-the-gun player call. Um, so Steve now is getting 5-1 to one and closing the action. My temptation is to call here, but I'm not 100% sure that's right.
2: Yeah, I'm a little bit confused. Actually, my first instinct is to fold, but um, because the effective stacks are, are, are pretty small and... Um, it's gonna be hard
0: to to play a flop one pair, which is what you're gonna yeah. have most of the time you have anything at all
2: well, so let's see twelve times uh twelve times five is sixty minus the rake so like fifty four is fifty four then yeah, so it's gonna be like three and a half to one um
0: oh yeah, he's not actually getting five to one he's getting four to one
2: yeah, that's right um so yeah, I mean it's getting to the point where. Yeah, so it's still deep enough where playing a uh, flop top pair of kings is not going to be great. Like if it was maybe two to one, then you flop a king and you're happy. Maybe. Sorry, no, I was wrong. he is getting five to one. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think it's close. I think it's close. I think. I mean, if I had to choose now, I would fold. But but okay um oh you think you call too much i think
0: so although i'm I'm also accustomed to like if, if i were making this limp in the first place it would be because we're a little bit deeper so yeah i'll say that in my defense
2: yeah i mean i think um i this is something that's changed like through the years for me i i would uh before i would call a lot and now i've started folding more and i'm happy with that but like I mean it's live poker. I don't have a database. Like, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> like it's very hard. Like, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. So so he calls. It's probably not terrible. I wouldn't. I would have folded this hand twice by now probably. But here we go. Uh, at this point, yeah, uh,
0: fifty-five dollars after the rake. Flop is king, jack, five with two hearts and no clubs. And just as a reminder, Steve, our hero, is holding king, six of clubs. Everyone checks. Uh, I I do think this is a pretty straightforward check for for Steve, given that he's still got the preflop Razor deck behind him. Yep. The turn is an offsuit 10, so still $55 in the pot. Board now King, Jack, 5, 10 with two hearts. Our hero holding King, 6 of clubs. It checks around to Steve. Given that nobody has shown any interest in the pot yet, I decide to take a stab and bet $35. Thoughts?
2: I like the bet. I think you can't expect a bet from worse behind you all that often. Um, I think a lot of the hands that are worse than yours will be happy to check, um, uh, either because maybe they have a pair and a weak draw, or likely because um, they see three high cards and they don't have a piece of it, and and they don't, and and they think that they can't bluff everybody, and they're probably right. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think I think I would like some money to go in on the street. And I think if you want that to happen, you should bet. So um, so that's that. And uh, I, as for the size, um, I would say like half the pot. That it seems to be a, a touch heavy to me. I, I, I might bet like 30 uh, yeah. or even 25. Th- um,
0: that was my thinking, and I think that's better against more good opponents. Um, in a 1-2 game, this might be better than, than just betting half pot. I think you're going to get more incorrect calls. Just you know, people making sort of blatantly bad calls with, I don't know, 8s, eights, eights, Yeah, ten nine. Um, I just think people are going to be more, money to put, more willing to put money in the pot with weaker hands.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, good. Um, I think there's
0: a pretty good chance here has the best hand. Like given how much checking has gone on in, in, in multi wave pots, people tend to be pretty honest.
2: Okay, and and but you like the bet.
0: Yeah, I, I, I definitely like betting. I, I don't think checking accomplishes a whole lot. Like I, said, I do think Hero probably has the best hand. I see a lot of second best hands that are willing to call. I don't think it's impossible that people are checking slightly better hands um, just because they're very passive. So Like Jack-5 or something where someone is sort of like, well, it's just bottom two pair. It's not really that strong of a hand. I don't want to play a big pot with it. I'll just check it. You know, I, I don't think it's a guarantee that he's good in that sense. I think it's somewhat unlikely that people are checking monster hands. Um, yeah. I would say the, the most likely monster hand that's getting checked would be a straight. Uh, I think people are a little more likely to slow play the nuts than, than hands that even though the nuts is actually a pretty vulnerable hand on this board with, with a flush draw and um, with I mean, so many people in there, uh, any pair on the board is, is potentially threatening but um, I think people are just a little more likely to slow play the nuts but in, in general I think that you're not going to see a lot of slow playing in this spot and if people are checking it's because they have a slightly better but still marginal hand than yours if, if they're checking anything better than yours at all.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I, I think you can find some Jack-10 here sometimes, too. That Yeah,
0: I'd bet that in the same category as Jack-5.
2: Yeah. Um, although it requires... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good. Um, so uh, uh, Steve bets 35, the button folds, the blinds both call, and under the gun folds. And uh, Steve has some reads on on his opponents. The small blind was a middle-aged guy who hadn't gotten involved very often in the four or so hours I was at the table. But when he did, he played big pots, including once where he cold three-bet shoved for $300 on a jack-six-seven board with king-jack offsuit. Huh. Uh, The only other notable hand he played was when he folded ace's face-up on a jack-high board when his opponent bet $200, more than half a stack, into a 125-ish pot. Okay.
0: Yeah, so kind of conflicting information. I mean, on, on the one hand, it seems like he kind of overplayed. At, I think the action on that board, I, I condensed this email a little bit, but I think the action on that board was, you know, continue, on the Jack-6-7 board was a continuation bet, a raise, and then this guy just ships 300 with, with King Jack on Jack-6-7, which I think is probably pretty bad.
2: Well, you won't have any tough decisions later if you bet <laughs> all your money, so <laughs> just rip it in there.
0: That's... Um, and then now we've got him folding, presumably an overpair, yeah, folding an overpair to a, a single, although a very large, bet, um, on a flop in another circumstance. So a little hard what to what to make of this guy, but we know he's capable of overplaying ant.
2: Yeah, I mean it's interesting when a guy like plays King Jack like super fast and overbets with it. Well, I mean, we don't know that he was overbetting, but he probably was. And then the Jack High board comes, he faces an overbet and Bolton overpair interesting um yeah so that's 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 the guy uh big blind early 30s quiet loose passive pre-flop but limp re-raised a couple times okay um it might actually be me but but i'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) uh no uh so the big blind thought for a while before calling and i had the impression that he was deciding between all three options which made me think he had some marginal hand but also thought we were both weak Specifically, I thought he was very likely to have a jack. I thought the small blind was likely to have a draw, a king, or possibly a jack. Um, so some of these hands involving jacks, I mean, they uh, uh, one reason to call is because you're sorting out the pot odds. And one reason to spend time thinking about pot odds is that you have a pair and a draw, and you aren't real quick about what the math is in that situation. <laughs> so, um, uh, Or, I mean, it's, it's actually like a non-trivial of arithmetic you you know there's only one card to come you might have the best hand you might not have the best hand what if you make two pair etc um so that and a lot of hands with worse pairs also have straight draws um either good ones or bad ones so yeah i think i think steve's right to to think that jacks are likely hands or at least possible hands um what do you think of uh steve's reads and and thoughts here
0: um i think that the yeah i mean i I think he kind of summed it up um i mean those are the hands people are are most likely to have i would think that if the big blind had a stronger hand um you know i don't really see him thinking about well i guess he would think as much you know if he had like jack five as if he had like i don't know queen jack and thought it was good and was contemplating raising with it which i guess is he's uh steve is implying he might do um i don't know I, i guess the the thinking is is if, if, if the thinking really means pondering a raise, I think it would be more likely to indicate a marginal hand that is maybe a little better than heroes, like a Jack-5 or a Jack-10. Um if the thinking is, like you said, just, just calculating pot odds, I would say maybe he wasn't contemplating raising in that case, but that, that would be more consistent with him having just a jack. But I do think when, when you get called and not raised here, it's reasonable to, to put people on either draws or marginal hands. Not that you're beating 100% of their marginal hands, but you don't have to be. And, and I think it's somewhat unlikely that you're going to see um, the monster, particularly from the, the big blind, I would think. If he had slow played a very strong hand up to this point, he would want to raise now. Um, The the small blind could still be in in slow play mode, but I think the big blind, pretty likely, if if he had a a main hand on the turn, would want to raise it with a bet and a call.
2: I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, So they're three-handed to the river, and the river is the jack of hearts for a final board of king of hearts, jack, four of hearts, offsuit ten, jack of hearts. So the flush comes in, and the second card on the board pairs, and it's a pretty bad card. Good old Steve here, right? Who's holding King 6? Yes. The <laughs> uh, small blind checks pretty quickly, and the big blind bet $25 into the pot of $160. My initial thought was that I'd have to make a crying call because of the ridiculous odds I was getting, but I then realized that the $25 bet screamed of a blocking bet, which is a move I think this player is very likely to have in his arsenal. That's consistent with a jack that just made trips but doesn't want to call a big bet. Uh, I also think it's very hard for the small blind to have a full house here. I thought more likely hands were a bear king, which I'd lose to if he called, or a weak flush, which I thought he could fold, given the paired board and the big blind yet to act. So both of their ranges are capped. Conversely, I think I can definitely have a boat here with king jack, jack 10, or fours that was going for a check raise on the flop. I almost certainly raised 10s preflop, so I don't think that's realistically in my range. All of this led me to turn my king into a bluff and shove my remaining $250. I'm actively looking for more spots to make unconventional raises, shoves, etc. in situations where I think I can exert good leverage and where my opponent's ranges are capped.
0: I just want to say that I love that last sentence and I'm going to be critical of some of the stuff that came before it. So I want to highlight <laughs> how important that last sentence is. And, and part of the reason it's important is that it leads to the criticism that's that's going to come. Uh, I mean, when when you're playing one two is sort of the time. Well, I guess there's, you should know. I mean, I still do this, but uh, I mean, sometimes you're, you're gonna you're gonna be making mistakes sometimes when you try to do unconventional stuff. But uh, this is actually a strategy point that we're gonna come back to um, during our, our interview later. Uh, the just the importance of doing unconventional things and how that really is how the the best players in the world get to the point where they are, and also how the best players at a given moment become the best players at that given moment because they're doing something that no one else is doing and they've sort of figured it out. And the way they figured it out was a combination of thinking about it theoretically, but then actually, you know, trying it and working it out. And it probably didn't work the, you know, as frequently as they would have liked the the first few times that they did it.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've spent a fair amount of time in the classroom and I'm tempted to say things like raise your hand if you've turned top hair into a bluff in the last three months. But (laughs) that doesn't work very well on a podcast. That works a lot better when you're in the front of a classroom with actual people listening in real time. But, yeah, uh, I I heartily agree with everything you just said. Now, let's get to the criticisms. Yeah,
0: well, I I also feel like I need to take a little bit of the responsibility because I think um, I know that I've said. You know i i talk about things like well don't assume that you just can't bluff at small stakes i talk a lot about the importance of recognizing capped ranges and i do more or less agree that um well i don't know that people's ranges are, are completely capped at not having you know full houses because we did talk about jack 10 being possibilities for people um i also think it matters where people's ranges are capped especially when you're dealing with less sophisticated players um, so you know e- even if you knew for sure that these players couldn't have a hand um better than trips or better than a straight. I still think it would matter how often they would have trips or a straight. I think it's going to be sort of tough to move people off of those hands, even though full houses are possible, flushes are possible. I think that um, one, two players in particular, but a lot of players really, are going to be influenced by the absolute strength of their hand in addition to what you're representing. And it takes a really disciplined player to lay down a straight or to lay down trips putting somebody on a full house or on a flush.
2: Yeah. And I mean, this is uh, and again, it might be something you hear about later in, in the episode in some form and in in tournaments, you're you're going to be thinking like, oh, is this guy going to find a way to call with trips or just quote unquote a straight here? Right. And then. Uh, but in a cash game, it's like the, the, the presumption is definitely calling like in a tournament. If you th- throw this much money into the pot presumption is that everybody's going to fold <laughs> pretty much I mean, to, to, to a first approximation if on this board if this much money gets bet it's not going to get called a lot of the time would you say that's fair yeah yeah okay uh not so in a in a one-two cash game or maybe in many other cash games although so, in like
0: a five dollar tournament that may not be as true
2: which that, i think is sort of the equivalent
0: of a one-two cash game
2: sure sure that's fair yeah, it, it, I mean, there's also the question of what Steve is representing, right? Like, if I were to look at this, not that I wouldn't make fold a lot of hands to Steve because I would be in a 1-2 game and I would look at the raise on the River <laughs> and I would say, like, oh, this guy's probably got it. Um, but you at least have to wonder, like, if he had a flush, would he be... I mean, would he have played like this all along? And would he really be... Uh, like, raising that much and raising into a possible full house, I mean, it doesn't... Yeah, might not look a lot like a flush. I think a lot of people would make smaller value raises with a flush. Um,
0: yeah, I, I think so, it's sort of like many players won't have the sophistication to put you on a flush, and the ones who will may well have the sophistication to realize that you. it's difficult for you to actually have what you're representing.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, especially since... A lot of their hands have blockers to the hands you're representing, even if they're not thinking in terms of blockers. It's this is a tough, this is a pretty tough bluff to get through. I think that that um, one two, lots of combinations of straights. Um, I mean, they're all discounted, but a lot of things are are, are discounted. Um, even if he does have, yeah, it's 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 going to be tough. It's going to be tough.
0: Uh, It was tough. The the small blind thought for, Steve says, not that long and called with ace-queen. So he did, in fact, have the the turn straight that he was slow playing. The big blind complained about the damn flush before folding, um, which makes me think my read that he had a jack was on point. I'm pretty confident he would have folded if small blind had folded. So I guess the question comes down to how often small blind wakes up with a straight or a flush, which obviously he also would have called. Versus other random hands. Uh, And I would throw trips into that category as well as for for the reasons I already mentioned. I think once once you throw trips in there, especially it's going to be pretty often because what else? Like the only thing you're getting them off of that's better than your hand is like a random king. There aren't really many draws on the river that missed at this point. I know he mentioned like eight, nine as a possibility, but um, yeah, I mean, he has to have something. And if he doesn't have those hands, it makes it more likely that the big blind does have them. Uh, you know, this is another thing that, like, if the small blind weren't in there and it was just the big blind at 25 into 160, I think the shove has a lot more merit. Yeah. But the the extra danger of the small blind sitting there behind you, you know, he doesn't have to wake up with a hand that often to make this unprofitable.
2: That's right. It's also not clear to me that he would have, like, that, that the big blind would have folded if the small blind uh, had folded, I, I think. Yeah, given the muttering and the... Yeah, I, I think people who are close to calling <laughs> when, when against two people, um, or who are angry about folding with two people, are at least sometimes gonna gonna pull the trigger with one person. Um, I'm not saying it's a sure thing. I, I don't think that given everything Steve has said about this person, that 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 assumption that he makes is right. But. Um, but i love i love parts of the thought process and i like the guts and moxie yeah yeah moxie <laughs> that's a good word yeah so so keep it up and if in 5 years you're Unbelievably good at poker. I won't be all that surprised.
0: I'd I'd be curious to see another hand from Steve uh, Where where something unconventional? Well, I guess I mean, I'd be happy to see another unconventional play that that didn't work out But I'd also be uh, be curious to see one that did whether it's the a similar play or or something entirely different Uh, I'm I'm for one. I'm curious to see what other sorts of unconventional plays Steve comes up with
2: Yeah, I hope so and I hope Steve is is better after listening to this
0: Uh, as we hinted, we are going to have some strategy talk coming up in our interview as well, which is with Andrew Seidman, aka Beluga Whale, uh, formerly a professional poker player. I think still a, a somewhat serious poker player, probably still derives a, a, some some income from poker-related sources, of some substantial income, I would think. Author of Easy Game, which uh, I have a review of on my blog, and I'll try to remember to put a link in the show notes. But if you Google uh, Andrew Brookes Easy Game. You should be able to find my uh, my review of his book. He is also a poker cro- a poker coach and instructor at Deuces Cracked, and uh, most recently an entrepreneur. So we're going to talk to him about all of those things. And I do want to emphasize that we will get around to some pretty interesting strategy talk towards the end of the interview, some of which ties in with what we were just talking about uh, in regards to Steve's hand. And I wanted to be sure that we flagged that because my hunch is that there are some people out there who listen to the strategy segments and then are a little more selective about whether they listen to the interviews. So I want to make sure those people know that there is going to be some, um, I thought, some pretty good strategy stuff. So there was some eye-opening stuff for me in the, in our talk with Andrew.
2: Yeah, me too. I mean, there are also people who listen to the interviews and don't listen to the strategy, but they're not listening right now. <laughs> yeah. So, Mom, you whatever. can feel
0: free to turn this off with about 20 minutes left in the interview. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right. Alright, let's go let's go get Andrew here. We
1: are sad. We better get out of this bag before we get in trouble. And I said we better just leave it on unread and retreat on the double.
3: Uh
0: so thank you for joining us, Andrew. Where are we catching up with you right now?
3: Uh, I'm actually in San Francisco on my way to New York in a couple days. What brings you
0: out to San Francisco? Uh,
3: this is where I spend most of the time actually I have an apartment down here. Do um and uh, yeah that's that's most of the time I spend here. I'm I'm about to move out there and I'm terrified. Oh it's the best place in the country. Well yeah I mean I'm sure I'm sure I'll, sorry, I'm sure I'll enjoy living there
0: I just do not look forward to finding a place
3: and paying for it. Yeah there's that. <laughs>
0: what uh, what part of San Francisco do you live in?
3: I live up in the marina district. Uh, it's sort of like the north section of the city, kind of close to the, the water. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of uh, finance bros and uh, babes <laughs> and yoga pants and polo shirts and all that stuff. So you can imagine it. It's got a reputation. Yeah, that's probably not the part I live in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't. If I did it again, I might not do it. I might not live here but that's okay. <laughs> it's all pretty good. Um. So you've been,
0: I don't know, I guess, do you, do you still consider yourself a professional poker player? yeah i would say
3: i would consider myself a part-time professional poker player uh and you've been at it for eight years ish yeah something like that that's about right how'd you get started um i used to play like high school home games for like 20 bucks pop Mm -hmm. and i kept losing to this really annoying guy that i just knew with a lot of certainty that i was like smarter (laughs) than and um and so uh i I got like a Sports Illustrated that had the article that featured two plus two along with Jason Strasser and uh, and Vanessa Seltz. You know, you're old school and you like actually know about what article I'm talking about. Um, I basically, you know, you're
2: old school when you're when you're quoted in that article. Are me. you really quoted in that article? That's awesome. I believe so. Yeah. Um,
3: so, yeah, that was that was like, I was like, oh, I should go to this website, two plus two and see what it is. And that was before it got overrun um, with everyone just trying to make a quick buck. That was back when there was still a lot of really high quality information. And so I kind of caught the tail end of that. Um, And then in college, I played all through my freshman year, uh, like grinding micro stakes, trying to figure stuff out and um, pretty much uh, figured figured out like one or two big things uh, summer after my freshman year of college and uh, moved up in stakes. And by the end of my sophomore year, I was playing 1020.
0: I, I can promise you people now are wondering what those two big
3: things were. Ha! Huh. Uh, the first one was no one's ever bluffing, <laughs> so just always fold. Um, like if it's a turn or river and somebody raises and you look at your hand and it's not like actually the nuts. Like if you have to think about it for a second, it's a fold. Um, so that one helped me a lot. And the second one, and these are by the way, you know, these are advice from the 2006-2007 era. But um, like no, nobody three bet light yet. Like if somebody threw it, they just had like Queens plus always. Um, and so, but people would call through bets all the time and just try to like beat King spots, which was actually like, you know, it was an okay strategy. Um, when the other person just definitely had the nuts. And, uh, so I just started three betting and C betting, like everything I remember for a while, like I just basically, I was playing two, four, I would just type in the number 44 over and over again, like somebody <laughs> would raise the 12 and I'd be like 44 enter and they'd call and I'd be like 44 enter and they'd fold and I just scooped like a <laughs> ton of money. Um, and uh obviously things have changed a lot but those those two things the, the ability to just fold a bunch of stuff and then like ramping up my preflop aggression a ton uh were actually made made it kind of easy to make a lot of money at that time and then obviously when i moved up things got more difficult
0: <laughs> i wonder you you could have been on my party poker buddy list cuz for a while i was i was like buddying those people who were three betting with hands less than queens i was like this is amazing this guy's putting so much money in the pot with bad hands i want and like it's he's always
3: playing he's playing eight tables this is great <laughs> yeah exactly i'm i'm sure that even today a few people have marked me as a fish um from time to time so
0: it's no no hard feelings uh so you're you're pretty young you said you were a freshman in in or by your sophomore year you said you're playing 10 20. Yeah, that must have been kind of surreal to to still be in college and playing for those sort of sticks.
3: Uh, It was pretty nuts, especially since I remember like looking at the 1020 games when they first came out when I was playing 25 cent, 50 cent or 10 cent, 25 cent and saying, like, I really want to play that, you know, that game one day. Um, It definitely surreal. And uh, also, you can take a lot more variance when you're like living in a dorm and have a meal plan and stuff (laughs) because, like, you don't really have any real world expenses yet. Yeah, it was really nuts, and I, in retrospect, I kind of wish that I had a little bit more life experience before me, before I started making that kind of money, because I would have probably, uh, I guess, wasted less of it, (laughs) Um, and made, like, like, better choices. Like, I've talked in the past about, uh, you know, I played, like, Jungle Man, a few big heads up 25-50 sessions, which is, like, kind of (laughs) stupid. I played, uh, you know, I I played in a lot of games that might not have been good games to play in, Um, and, you know, I was... uh, it was it was a surreal experience to say the least for a you know a 19 year old you know or a 20 year old to to deal with that kind of money at that time. Do you feel like
2: you missed out on some of the experience of being a kid or a young adult, like who's just sort no, of supposed think, to be broke I for a while? I think
3: I got like ten times. As much <laughs> experience being, um, like. I mean the whole idea of like being young is you can kind of do what you want without very many consequences. I feel like, and then, uh, you know, because that happened, I was pretty much just traveling all over the world. I was doing all kinds of stuff, uh, that, you know, you're not supposed to be able to do cause you're like supposed to be growing up and stuff. And I was just stuck in permanent. I like I can be a kid forever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so no i, I kind of feel i kind of feel like um actually, i'm re- obviously I'm really glad that I had the experience that I did because I got to do a lot of stuff that most people dream of doing for their their you know their whole life, and uh, I did basically like all of it between the ages of like nineteen and twenty three um mm-hmm. So, so I, I don't like, feel bad about it. So traveling
2: or or other thing anything in specific anything more specific than than what you said like specific places you traveled or, or other stuff you specifically got to do that you know that you checked off a list at 20 and other people still have on their bucket list?
3: I mean I traveled a ton like a crazy amount um between like having apartments in like Buenos Aires or Bangkok um, to just like touring through Europe or touring through South America, or I spent like a whole bunch of time in Australia or, um, you know, various parts of Asia and went through China and stuff. Like I really went like, all over the place. Um, I think another real benefit was when I was like picking my major and my classes in college, I got to really do the stuff that was most interesting to me and not what I thought would make the you know make the most money for me or be the best career choice. So I was I was a Middle Eastern Studies major in college, which I only felt comfortable doing because I was like I'm not going to need a job after college. Right. Um, and so I think uh, I think those are the kind of things that were particularly uh, you know unusual but also really great.
2: Why well, yeah. Middle Eastern studies? What, what specifically was interesting about it?
3: Well, so what ended up happening was I, I always really liked languages, and I kind of thought that I was going to be – before poker happened, I kind of thought that I was going to be a, uh, like a political science guy. Um, so I started off taking government classes, uh, and I took Arabic language um, on the side just as, as an interest. And um, – Then I hated government classes, but I kind of liked the Arabic ones, but I decided I was move on to economics next and I failed out of that. So then I I changed my major like six times or seven times total, uh, but ended up only having enough credits to graduate with a Middle Eastern (laughs) Studies degree, which just so happened that it was also, you know, like the ability to speak Arabic is really, really awesome. Um, I spent a lot of time in Morocco, which is like a really unique place to, you know, to get an experience. And so ended up working out pretty well.
2: Yeah, very good. So I, I'm, I'm a philosophy phd student um languages are a big part of what you do if you do what i do which is ancient philosophy um greek is hard enough and i've heard it said that if you meet somebody who is not a native arabic speaker and but who who claims to know arabic that person is lying is it really that hard (laughs)
3: uh yeah it's it's uh it's pretty brutal actually I (laughs) I, i still take classes to be honest okay um it's uh like they have like 30 words for everything um, and they're all like in use. So a good example would be uh, there would be like I can think of like five or six words off the top of my head that all mean to leave. Like if you Google them on Translate or something, it would just tell you to leave. But one of them means like to leave with a wistful connotation of leaving (laughs) something behind and another one means like to leave in an agitated state. And there's so many of them. That like, you know, every time I'm going to go read a new article or read something in Arabic, I'm always like, all right, this time I'm like, I'm on my game. I'm going to be able to understand all of this. And then there'll be like five words every sentence. that I just have no idea what they are. And I'll Google <laughs> them and they'll be like, oh, this means to leave. And I'm like, all right, great. Like, that's <laughs> but, awesome. But, but like the
2: syntax is also insane, too, right? Like it's not just vocab, like people with really great memories would not have trouble with it if it was just vocab, right? It's like the syntax and the grammar are also just insane and our feeble Western minds cannot, <laughs> like, or like, like people who, who... Oh, sorry.
3: Oh, no, okay. Sorry to interrupt you. The, the grammar oh. is actually, like, somewhat functional. Okay. Um, it's actually not too bad. Um, the pronunciation is absolutely savage. Okay. Okay. Um, there's just a lot of sounds that you have never made in your entire life, unless someone like stabbed you with a fork. Um, and so, uh, it's, it gets like pretty tricky to a remember the word and then b to actually be able to reproduce the word. Um, and then sort of last but not least, there is kind of a grammatical, it's not really grammatical. It's more of like a, uh, etymological structure, um, where, uh, there is a, like there's little modifier letters that go inside of the word itself which change the meaning um and so it ends up being you know you might see you might see like the core letters in a word and say like oh i know that those core letters mean like a good example would be like to greet someone is basically qbl is like the word for to greet um but if you hang on the b for a second longer it means like to kiss which kind of makes sense also because that's something that you do when you greet someone Right, but then if you take those exact same words or letters Q B L, but you add like an M, an S, a T onto it, uh, then you end up with the word for the future, which is something that you like greet, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Right, right, right. Um, so it's and like so a, yeah. it's not exactly grammar, so to say, but it's it's definitely a little tricky. I see. So
2: and and we will talk about poker at some point, but like uh, uh, the Middle East fascinating, super important. To a first approximation, I know nothing about it. What's one book I can read either about the history or the culture or the language or anything?
3: Uh, what's uh, one gonna, book I can read that would be really good? I'm gonna opt out of this question and take the modern like 2014 answer uh-huh. and give you like four people to follow on Twitter. Very good, great, um, fantastic. That, that sounds um, like much less actually, work. Cool. I actually just posted a, uh, a new blog um, yesterday or something like that about like how I learned to love Twitter. And the way that I did it was I picked an interest and I just like searched for it on Twitter and followed the first like three or four people and then saw who was interesting and who they retweeted and all that. So the people that I would recommend, especially if you're interested in like Middle Eastern politics and all that, um, is a guy named Aaron Zellen who runs a blog called jihadology where he basically translates the original source materials from jihadi groups into English, which is I think super kind of badass. Okay. Um, Philip Smythe is another guy. J M Berger at Intel wire is really, really good. I mean, you can just follow, go to my blog. It's at andrewseidman.com and see all the people that I recommend in that post. Um, but, uh, it's like there, it's a, it's a big and varied place and linguistically it's incredibly diverse. Like I speak decent Moroccan, but no one else can understand that. (laughs) Um, Like if you went to, you know, Egypt, they would not have any idea what you're saying. Um, And the difference between Egyptian and Syrian and Saudi Arabian is very stark. Um, But I mean, it's it's a it's a in a sense it's a beautiful and fascinating place. It's just kind of sad that it, it sucks so hard right now.
0: So it, it sounds like a lot of your traveling was for pleasure or for interest more so than just because that's where the next poker tournament was.
3: Well, I was never really a tournament guy.
0: Yeah. Um, but even like tra- that's where, because I mean, the good cash game is also usually where the tournaments are.
3: Yeah, that's true. But, you know, back in back when I was doing a lot of these traveling, like the good cash games were wherever my laptop was. (laughs) 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 Like, like there was really a period where you could play between Full Tilt and Stars. You could play like a full roster of 10, 20, 25, 50 games that were halfway decent, kind of like whenever. Nowadays, those like those days are far gone. But I mean, quite literally, I think I made a crazy amount of money at airports where I would just be, like, waiting for my flight. I would play, like, four tables or six tables on my laptop and then, you know, pay for my trip five times over and then leave. Um, It was – essentially, it was 100% for pleasure. I don't think I ever really traveled for poker until kind of later on once the whole online thing kind of died down.
0: That makes sense to me, but it seems like something very few people did. I don't know. I guess, like, most people who – um, got into poker at the age that that you did and end up having as much success with it as you did um, I guess it, it, it seems like they've always kind of built their lives around poker um, and I, I mean, I, I respect that you didn't do that and I wonder um, I Don't know I guess just w- w- why you think you didn't fall into that same I would consider it a trap
3: I mean, I don't know I uh, I was at I, I was at school. I was at Dartmouth, which is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> And it wasn't like I was – like I think a lot of people who were living in major places like New York especially, you know, it was really easy to sort of network and make poker friends and then make poker houses and all that. Um, but, you know, at Dartmouth, that's like not really a thing. Like there were some really good poker players at Dartmouth. Some of the best players in the world actually are, are from – went to school with me, um, especially like – I don't know if you know Steve Cesaro, who is like the short stack genius who crushed Phil Ivey. Um But uh, – so it wasn't like there was – there was like a much smaller community at Dartmouth. There wasn't like it was a big opportunity to go and be a big part of that world. I remember the first time I met any poker players, I flew to Barcelona. um, Before I went to Morocco, I was like on my spring break, I went to Barcelona and I like hung out with poker players in Barcelona. It was the first time it ever happened. Um, It just wasn't really like, I guess, like it didn't really take off for me until Deuces Cracked started. Mm. And then I met like a lot of people through Deuces Cracked. But at that point, I kind of had my own interests set up and had my own life set up. And poker was an awesome addition to that, but it never really became other than the actual time spent playing and teaching. It never really became like a central part of my social life, I don't think. How did you
0: connect with the people that you ended up meeting in, in Barcelona or those two plus two connections?
3: Yeah, one of them went. To, one of them went to college with me. So one of them was a, a guy named Leon Chang, who was like a two plus two all star, who uh, was Eve Saint on two plus two. Oh yeah, went, holy what? crap! <laughs> um, he's a. Uh... Oh, of course. Well, that was his plan. Um, he was. Uh, he was in my fraternity actually. Uh, hilarious little Chinese guy, who I love dearly, and. Um, he he was going to go over to barcelona to hang out with um a group of like once upon a time legends like um fish and mason 55 and all these people who were all people that i had communicated with you know in in the past so i went out there and uh i got uh, i I basically stayed at their apartment uh, for a week or so they just were crazy (laughs) they were like had a ton of money and were just they literally had lived in barcelona for like six months and none of them spoke any spanish none of them had tried they did they just literally ate at the same tapas bar right next to their apartment every day um that guy the owner of that bar just loved them like he just gave us a ton of free shots (laughs) and food all the time because i'm sure they dropped like five grand plus per month at this place um and uh you know, and I, you know, that was my first kind of introduction. I, I went to dinner with like Cole South, who at the time was like playing, like actually believe it or not, I think he was playing the same limits as me, um, which I think we both moved up at a similar rate until I hit 1020 and then he just kept going. Um, <laughs> he's like, the, I think he's like the best player of all time though. So there's that. It, it um, was around then when I think it was Ariel Schneller
2: said that like, he could count on one or two hands the number of people who were good enough to understand how good Cole South was, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, he, he was that good, right? He was that far above everybody else. Yeah, the
3: right? best the best post I ever I ever heard was like Cole South will just literally bluff you all day, and then the moment you decide to take a stand, he has the nuts. And it was like I have no idea how he did it. I saw him do some things that should not work. I can think <laughs> of two hands that I saw him do that I was like, this should not work, and. It was, so I'll, I'll tell you, they're both insane. The first one, it's a 10-20 game. Folds to Cole in the small blind. And there is a, like, kind of random fishy guy in the big blind who has about, um, what, about 1,200, or something like that? And co- folds to Cole, you know, small blind for 10. And he open raises to 400. <laughs> okay. And this like fishy guy in the big blind thinks for a while and then just like ships and Cole calls with pocket tens and the fishy guy just has a seven and he just wins. <laughs> and I'm like, how, like, how did you do that? That's amazing. Um, and then the second one, which is, I think like just as crazy, if not crazier, um, he was playing heads up against the guy at 2550 against like kind of a fishy guy at 2550. And he, Three bets the guy and the guy calls and the flop comes down like Ace King Four with two diamonds and he bets and the guy calls, and then the turn card is like a three offsuit and he bets again and the guy calls, and the river card is like um like a six something like that just a random low card and Cole checks and this guy bets like well he probably bets like uh like he probably bets like two thousand leaving himself like eight hundred behind something like that. And Cole checks ships and the guy folds and Cole shows a bluff. <laughs> and I'm like, he showed queen 10. And I was like, like that's that's not like, a th- I can't ever teach that to someone. Like I could never be like, oh, here's a great spot to go for the suicide bluff against the guy who never folds. Uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, I the, used to watch his like videos a long time ago where he'd be like, oh, well you got the 10, five offsuit here. And so we're gonna raise it, you know, a lot of dead money out there. And okay, we get re-raised <laughs> by this guy who's like really nitty who has played one hand in the last four hours. So I think he's kind of scared money. So uh, I'm gonna go ahead and put a four bet here. Okay, he clicks it back for a five bet there. And um, a lot of money out there, you know, got good back doors, like I'm all in. And the guy just folds. Like, I don't, you know, and then he just shows and it's just like, well, like, how do you do this? It's like magic. so, yeah, I've, 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 so I met Cole in, in Barcelona way back in the day, very briefly. We had dinner one night. It was my first credit card roulette, and he ordered the most expensive two bottles of wine on the menu. <laughs> um, and then I didn't have to pay, which was nice. He bought, he bought it, which is great. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Sorry, that's, that story took a long, a divergent it was, tangent. It was worth there.
0: it. Okay, yeah. right, so we left you off. Uh, you, in <laughs> Barcelona, you meet these uh, poker players. That helped you to get better networked into the, into the poker world?
3: Uh, a little bit, not really. A lot of those guys ended up like kind of dropping out of poker relatively quickly after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it wasn't really until – so I had, when I was actually working – when I was like doing my abroad term in Morocco, uh, Jay Rosencrantz asked if I wanted to be a part of 3 which was his like poker coaching site. Um, and I, I thought that was a great idea, so I said yes. And then that site eventually merged and became Deuces Cracked. And they they got a deal at some point in like 2000 and 11 maybe they got a deal with um the crown casino in melbourne australia to bring us all out for deuces crack to do like instructional seminars and stuff and so i went out there and then i met i met all the whole like deuces cracks last two months two million crew and that was what really kind of brought me in with you know with making a lot of poker friends so those whenever i go to vegas for the world series whatever those are the guys that i hang out with in general
0: so you had already gotten quite successful before um I guess, but, but before you fell in with a regular poker crowd, you you did a lot of that oh, yeah. uh, on, on your own or with the help of two plus two, but it's not like you were living just in a poker house.
3: No, never. I was just doing my own thing. I was, I was, uh, I was teaching a lot. I was doing a lot of coaching. Um, and, uh, I had made like good virtual relationships with people. You know, I had like, uh, there were a variety of people that I was really comfortable talking, talking hands with for a while. MIRC was like a reasonable place to go talk. Um, but, uh, No, I mean, uh, the truth was that I, it was really cold at Dartmouth, (laughs) it was like negative 10 degrees every day. Um, And I had no interest in going to class. And poker was, you know, when I started having a little bit of success, I just buried myself in it completely. And I essentially, I think I figured, with the help of people posting stuff online and stuff, I figured it up more or less all out myself.
0: Was the poker ever a concern for your family? I mean, considering that it it sounds like Uh, it was a pretty big distraction from college
3: yeah um it took my dad about a year to get over it It took my mom about three years um you know i've always been pretty independent so they kind of knew they didn't have, have a chance of stopping me um <laughs> but uh my favorite story about this is uh you know every year my dad would grumble about like the tuition he would say something like ah it's stupid pay this tuition it's so much money and i would say that. every year i'd say dad like do you want me to uh you know, do you want me to help pay for it? And he would say, no, 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 no. It's, you know, it's my job as a dad to do this. And, and then one year I made like a, a lot of money <laughs> and the same conversation happened and my dad was grumbling. and I was like, dad, do you want me to, uh, to help out with this? And he was like, okay, sure. <laughs> I was like, wait, excuse me. I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. Um, and so, uh, so it, once I did that, then I think both my parents were like, okay, he's going to be fine. It's all going to be okay. I got that check cleared. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh well, if you're gonna do that, then I guess poker can't be that bad. And then they're like, all right, we're gonna go take some trips now.
0: <laughs> so they they were pretty aware of like the the stakes that you were playing for, the the amount of money you were winning and sometimes losing.
3: Yeah, uh, I think you know my mom, very rightly so, was more mostly worried about my emotional health. Right. Um, you know, there were some times where you're down swinging really hard. It's a lot of money. Um, where, and I was also like a pretty young and emotional guy and it was, uh, I'm sure I became pretty disagreeable and not a cool guy to hang out with. Um, and I think that scared my mom a lot, but the good news is that I, I think that in time kind of like, and also probably somewhat with black Friday, just kind of got over a little bit. Like you, sometimes you lose, sometimes you do a great job and you just lose (laughs) and that's just the way it is. So black Friday wasn't like a hugely
0: devastating moment for you.
3: Oh, it was it was hugely devastating at the time, uh, and it set me into a, a deep, deep Netflix spiral. Um, but but uh, there are worse spirals. Was, yeah, I mean, I watch I think I watched like all eight or however many seasons of Seinfeld there are in a row, which is like pretty pretty sickening. Um, but uh, there, uh, the truth was that I. I've always had like a lot of interest and I never really wanted to be like a a 50 year old guy. Who's like saving grace in life was that I'm like pretty good at folding two pair when I'm behind. Um, And so, uh, so I was kind of, you know, nowadays I look back at it as being kind of happy about an opportunity. Um, But at the time, like, yeah, it sucked. I was scrambling. Not only did I lose all the money I had online, but I literally um, just emptied my bank account to pay off Uh, taxes on the stuff that was online that ended up not even being real. Right. I had, so what happened is I had withdrawn a big amount of money to to be used for my taxes, but it didn't arrive. And while I was waiting for it, like waiting and waiting and waiting, I was like, shit, like I've got to send my taxes in. So I was just like, okay, I know it's been like three weeks since that full, you know, they took the full tilt wire should be here any day. So I'm just going to send off this check, you know, with all of my, uh, with basically all (laughs) of my money to the feds and that'll be just totally or the IRS. that will be totally fine. And then of course that check, the, the wire that I had requested never arrived. Um, and so I was scrambling for sure. Um, there's no coincidence that, uh, the third edition of my book was released, like, pretty quickly after Black <laughs> Friday. So I was like, holy shit, like, what am I going to do right now? Um, but, uh, it's, um, you know, when you look back at it, the way my life is now and the kind of things that I'm able to do now, uh, I'm, I guess in a sense, like, I'm happy that it happened, uh, if only for the, the ability to expand and to grow as a person and do some different things. And, and what are the different things? Um I've been getting really into the whole entrepreneurship scene in San Francisco. It's pretty exciting. Um I, I I I work at a startup. Talk about that. Oh yeah. Um sure. Uh so about a About a year and three months ago, uh, I co-founded a digital marketing company with um, two of my best friends from growing up. One of my friends had basically started this company as a sole proprietorship and was doing pretty well, but really wasn't growing the company all that much. And uh, another friend started doing the same thing and started doing really well. And then I tried it for just a brief amount of time and started doing pretty well. And so we basically decided to, to make it formal. And now we've got like a whole group of employees and we got, you know, a big roster of clients. And so it's become a real, it's become a, you know, a very real business. Um, and so I've learned a lot, uh, a lot about what it means to work with people, a lot about what it means to, um, to run a business. And then actually earlier today, I just pitched a different business that I'm working on that uh, is basically designed to help uh, groups of friends buy really cool stuff, like boats and vacation houses and airplanes and stuff like that um which i actually intend to market to poker players just as soon as it's ready so um so yeah so i've I've been able to do a lot of those kinds of things which i think i just would have been compelled to not do if i was still playing poker every day you know like it's pretty hard to be like oh i'm gonna put in some grindy work on this like you know new new idea for content marketing (laughs) when uh when you're like or i could go play 1020
2: (laughs) yeah i i I think i found that poker prepared me very well for some of the uncertainty of of you know early and mid-stage companies do you do you agree with that have you found that to be the case
3: i think that the best thing it does is it makes you tolerant of risk and interested in making like the best ev decision um a lot of business owners are like not very well trained emotionally or rationally to make uh, choices that are just like the right choice, but it might also kind of suck. <laughs> right. um, and so I think that like people have always, I've got a lot of questions about what do I do with my resume if I played poker and then black Friday happened and I view the ability to make high pressure, like risk reward decisions um, comfortably is like a massive skill. Yeah. very very few people have this skill let alone anywhere near the repetition that an online poker player did it with i mean if you can say like i played over a million hands of poker and i am cu- cool as a cucumber if something if i have to make a hard decision that's a really really amazing thing and so yeah i kind of agree with you like that ability to to tolerate the risk to be comfortable um thankfully both of my partners at this company are are also um, either used to be pro poker players or like poker enthusiasts. And so uh, we all kind of were able to sit down and say, all right, well, <laughs> this like literally with employees, we'll say something like, yeah, this guy seems like he's plus EV. Like we can, uh, we could probably try this guy out for a few months and see how it works. But we know that we might just fire him. Like it might not work out. You know, that's just something that we're okay with because we're just trying to make the right choice for the business.
0: What attracted you to those fields?
3: Um, so my, my brother, my older brother does uh digital marketing for Google. He's like been at Google forever. So I was kind of familiar with it in general. And then, um, actually what happened was my, uh, my roommate and one of my best friends, um, he, he and I went traveling to Peru together and I was like really curious about what he did for a living. And we talked a lot about it and I started to learn kind of what he was doing. And this is the guy who had basically started the sole proprietorship. And then we had another friend who used to be a, um, a minor league baseball player. <laughs> um, who got cut from his team and was like trying to figure out what he was going to do. And so we had bought tickets out to the East Coast to watch him play. But since that wasn't going to happen, uh, we flew out there anyway and helped him road trip his car back. And so we, we drove all the way through the South. Like we had this amazing trip and kind of by the end, the beginnings of this company had more or less come together. Because I have,
0: I, I would say, a very shallow understanding of, um, it, it's, it's kind of like SEO and, and pay-per-click stuff that you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. SEO has always sort of struck me as like the angle shooting of the Internet used to be used to be
3: like any like any game and system, there is a way to like uh, game it in a sense or to to try to like out scheme it mm-hmm. the same way that like in poker, you know, like bum hunting is like a shady way of like getting around actually having to be good at poker. Right. right? Um, and the sites are trying to get rid of it finally, but for a long time, they didn't really care. And it was to the point where like, well, it's kind of stupid, but I guess we all have to do this. Right. Um, so for a long time, there were like a lot of things that were pretty unethical, just random link spamming and like fake content and all kinds of stuff that used to actually improve your search results. Um, and then Google eventually just brought down the ban hammer super hard. Um, actually, Rap Genius, which is a pretty cool site, got in a lot of trouble for this because they never cleaned out their old links. Um,
2: also, also founded by poker players.
3: By indeed, way. also founded by poker players. Um, it's one of the reasons why I know about it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but so like there you know you have to be really careful nowadays. Actually, nowadays it's way more about just actually making legit real content. Um, if you are trying and producing a blog or updating your pages, Google will recognize that as you giving a shit about your website or your business, and will reward you. But if you, you know, if you mail it in, <laughs> they know. Their robots are really smart now, and uh, there's no avoiding it.
0: I, I will say that I still regularly get um, emails from from uh, I guess digital marketing companies uh, offering to provide guest content for my blog that seems pretty clearly designed to be SEO spam.
3: Oh yeah I mean don't get me wrong like there's it's it's a shape it's a changing industry but you know a lot of these people are getting frozen out and you know that doesn't mean they're still gonna try. Mm. You know, somebody who's like, hey, like there's still a lot of uh, like – so we, we have a content department at our website, um, at our company, and so we are we're hiring new bloggers essentially as we get bigger. Um, and, you know, there's still a lot of people applying for those jobs who are just like spammy SEO <laughs> keywords, you know. In fact, you can read the blog – the most recent blog we just did is about this very subject on the website. You go to digitalreachagency.com slash blog, you'll read this hilarious joke that, uh, that the guy uh, – that um, one of our writers put on there. Hold on, I'm gonna bring it up because the joke is hysterical. Um, he says, uh, "Oh yeah, it's a digital, a digital marketing or an SEO content writer walks into a bar, tavern, pub, liquor drinks, <laughs> late nights, open weekends," <laughs> 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 which is uh, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, I like that. Um, but uh, it's it's really changing. They're trying to make it an authentic experience. Um, Google's whole deal is about relevance. And so that's, that's where it is going eventually. And they, it used to be just like the, the carrot where they were like, Oh, just try harder, do better. And then like in the past couple of years, they brought out the stick pretty hard and you don't want to mess with them because they're pretty powerful. A a friend of
2: mine in in digital marketing claims that If you really are good at what you do, which it sounds like you are, you do a lot of A-B testing, you figure out what people actually respond to and what they actually click on, and that this can reveal some dark truths about human nature. Do you feel like you've learned dark truths about human nature from your job?
3: What kind of dark truths about human nature are you talking about?
2: That people are not. That people are much more interested in sort of shallow content than sophisticated content, that people would much rather look at certain kinds of pictures than study Arabic, say?
3: Well, I mean, in a sense, we're lazy. So we like to be entertained and there's like yeah. a, much has been written on the, the balance between entertainment and doing other stuff with your life, which is another reason why maybe getting out of poker is like a good idea. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> poker at the end of the day is an entertainment industry business. Some, um, if I go play high stakes against a weaker player, that's basically like a guy who's paying me a theoretic hourly rate to teach him about poker <laughs> more or less in a very direct yeah. way. It's essentially coaching just with the variance and higher stakes. <laughs> um, but uh, so so, no, I don't really know so much about like dark truths. I think that one thing that has been really interesting is the breadth of data that like search engines gather about their users. Yeah. Um, which has is equal parts fantastic and awesome and terrifying. Um, like we can tell you right now, if you have a product or even for just your your blog or your website or something like that, um, you know. Who, what states and cities do people most visit your blog from? And of those, like, what time of day do they do it? And who are they? Are they like male or female? What kind of money do they make? Are they older or younger? Um, we can basically boil that down to a tremendous degree of granularity um, and say, oh, like, you should probably market your blog to people from Wisconsin on Tuesdays because they love you, um, which on the one hand is awesome for you because you can find out exactly who likes your blog and, and spread it to the people who care the most. But on the other hand, it's like pretty freaky that Google knows like primarily what the, the habitants of Wisconsin are doing all day, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so uh, so it's been, um, I tend to side in the, in the, or tend to land on the side of it's kind of awesome to be honest.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, being correct, connected directly with the stuff you're interested in is unbelievable. Um, and there's a reason why Google makes so much money. It's because it's like so amazingly useful. You can literally the the breadth of world knowledge is in my computer, which is amazing. Um, if I want to buy something, I literally just Google it and I find 10 great options immediately you know? So, so I've learned stuff about that, but as far as like human beings, not people, people are kind of random. There's not always logical. They'll like search for something and it's like definitely the thing that they want. And then they'll click on it. And then they like won't get it, (laughs) 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 which, which happens sometimes, or like, you know, people are sometimes more attracted to words that are misspelled than words that are spelled correctly. Um, It's all, it's like kind of funny like that, where if you, if you screw up accidentally while you're writing an ad, you might actually make like your company a lot more money, (laughs) which these things happen. But most of the time what ends up happening is uh, the real dark side of it actually are like the, the generally the agencies. Um, Most business owners are like kind of older, you know, they've kind of like been through it a little bit. Like they've started some, like, you know, footwear store in the 1960s that became really popular in Minnesota something like that, Um, asking that guy to be able to understand what's happening with Google is impossible. So a lot of shady agencies prey on people like that, get them to charge insane amounts or get them to pay insane amounts, like setup fees, all all that kind of thing. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I think we've actually had so much success is we don't do anything like that. In fact, my, my roommate and the president of the company is like very adamant about making sure that we stay as honest as we possibly can. Um, which I think has led to a lot of people like signing up with us and even more people staying with us.
0: When you mentioned the, uh, the dangerous enticements of entertainment it reminded me that i caught a david foster wallace uh, reference on your blog
3: i was gonna yeah i was gonna yeah i was gonna mention that like as far as people who rail against entertainment like david foster wallace is like the guy who's like hey should probably stop watching so much tv and go live for a while (laughs) Um, which I, i i honestly tend to agree with but i'm i'm guilty sometimes as well like i had to banish a tv out of my apartment because it's just too damn easy <laughs> to be like, I'm just going to watch some football on Sunday. I'm just going to watch some football. <laughs> and then like 14 hours later, I'm like, I can't watch any more football now. Um, you, know, are, you know what I mean? Are, are you talking
2: primarily about his essay on uh, irony and televisual culture?
3: Um, I was actually talking about just Infinite Jest in general.
2: Yeah great Um, great book but yeah sorry
3: i've never made it through so i'm not going to pretend like i have it's like (laughs) the most impossible book to read ever but i read far enough into it to get you know to get a lot of the idea which is like there's a movie so entertaining that it literally kills you (laughs) and everyone wants to watch it (laughs) pretty amusing
0: so you mentioned um your your third edition of easy game Coming out pretty quickly after Black Friday, and I feel like the, the way you presented it kind of made it sound like a, a rush job. But as, as someone who reviewed that book when it came out, I mean, I, I guess I hadn't read the earlier versions, but um, it, it seemed to me like you put a, a pretty good amount of effort into making improvements over the previous.
3: Um, well, it was it was released, I think, you know, six months after Black Friday. So you had a
0: good amount of time to.
3: So I I didn't I didn't rush it out, but like I started working on it basically immediately after Black Friday happened. Mm because I was pretty aware that, like, I wasn't, you know, I was not in an awesome position. Um, But yeah, I, I, it it wasn't a, it wasn't a rush job. It was just something that, like, I knew I was going to have to release.
0: How well do you feel like that's stood the test of time? I mean, is it time for a fourth edition?
3: I am actually kind of stunned at how well it continues to sell, (laughs) (laughs) to be (laughs) totally honest. Um, I, uh, like, I had kind of a, like, a low sales month, like, a year and a half ago, maybe two years, about probably, probably over two years ago now, actually. And I was like, well, looks like it's finally, you know, (laughs) looks like sales are finally out. And then it just picked up again (laughs) (laughs) and it's been doing fine for, for like really almost three full years now. Um, so I, I don't know if I'm going to actually redo Easy Game. I have written about a quarter, maybe a third of a tournament book. Um, the problem with that is that I have no significant tournament results, <laughs> <laughs> except for I had a good run this year, this summer. Um, but uh, I I, I want to get get through and finish it, to be honest. Uh, whenever I have a chance to play online poker, I try to I try to actually play a lot of tournaments now, and I've been doing a little bit more, like I. I played a lot more a lot uh, more tournaments um this summer at the world series than i normally do usually i just kind of like chill out and then go play like the main event maybe like one 1k and then i'm like okay one ks are stupid but this year i tried to actually try to play like a lot of events um and so i'm that's that's kind of as far as writing goes that's my that's my next step uh would be to get that book out i would love to have it out by the end of the year i don't know if it's going to happen um we'll see though so I went through kind of
0: a funny process in in preparing a bit for this interview, because I know that you had sent me a copy of that book to review, and I think it's on an old hard drive somewhere. So I've, I thought it would be okay for me to find a bootleg copy of it, um, sure. since I did have a legitimate copy of it.
3: You just asked me. I'll just send you a copy. Well, yeah,
0: I was, just, I was doing this like two hours ago. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
0: and then... Uh, then I was like, well, I guess I won't mention that on the show because I don't want other people to know that there's bootleg really copies out of it, of it out there. And then I found your blog post where you're talking about you don't really mind your stuff getting pirated.
3: Yeah, uh, I mean, I it's it's more like um, the internet like exists, <laughs> and so everybody who wants to try to pretend like things are like 1993 again, um, it's just like not how it works. And early on when I first sold easy game, it was like for $995, nine hundred fifty dollars a copy. Um, and that was because that was, I thought the best way to keep the information proprietary and to keep people like from actually distributing it freely because no one would spend a thousand dollars on something that they would just then put on the internet. Um, but, and it worked, it honestly worked for like a decent amount of time. It was a, people were able to get a lot of value out of that, who purchased the, uh, the book early on. Um. But the truth is that no matter what I did, if it was a good piece of content, which I had worked hard on making sure that it was, it was going to get spread on the internet. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, And uh, so I basically would, I say, you know, if you want to buy, if you want to buy a copy of the book, like that's great. And obviously that encourages me to want to write more books. Um, But like, it's the internet, (laughs) you can't fight it. And the, the other benefit I talked about in the blog is that if somebody bootlegs my book and they read it, and they think it's great um when i release my next book like let's say my tournament book there's going to be a lag period from where i release it and when it's actually like available to be downloaded somewhere like bootlegged. and a lot of people just don't want to do that they like a book comes out they want to read it they just get it
1: Mm
3: -hmm. you know and so i uh, i think in my blog i talked about angry birds like angry birds was just embracing the spread of fake angry birds in china (laughs) um because like they were basically just like this other company was doing like, like literally a um, hundred million person user acquisition for them. And then the moment that like they release a new Angry Birds, all these people are like, oh, hey, there's a new version of our Angry Birds game. that's out, <laughs> And they just get like a hundred million new, new customers. Um, so there's there's something to be said for like just letting your brand spread naturally and letting people communicate freely. So
2: in, in things like apps and in things like written content, this, this fact about the market, which I mean, what you say is sensible in some sense is just a fact, right? Um, it's led to differences in the content itself. So like oftentimes you get ads juxtaposed with the content to a greater degree than before. Um, the phenomenon you talk about with apps has, has led to the popularity of a, of an in-app purchase business model. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, has, has this sort of feature of, of the market and the distribution, uh, uh, sort of affected the content. Like, there's always an, an an interplay between the content and the 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 mode of presentation and and, and the the consumption patterns. Right? Like, uh, has this affected the content of the book that you're writing?
3: Um, not the book that I'm writing. Um, I my interest in general and kind of always has been, uh, just producing like really interesting food for thought. Um, I really one of the things I really enjoy about poker is trying to prove that things that are standard are not standard or are not good. Uh, <laughs> and it's gotten me in like, you know, proverbial heat in the past when I'm even like right now, I'm very, very strongly recommending limping buttons right now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like a lot of people aren't too keen about that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, have in the past, like talked a lot about flatting four vets and stuff like that, um, which, you know the point is basically I'm really interested in in being disruptive in terms of theory. So my book is more or less going to be about, um, you know, the best attempt I can make about why like current theory is wrong in some places and what, how it could be better. But I think that a lot of the content platforms have to have to kind of walk a very fine line nowadays which is you wanna be able to, to connect your users with relevant things and you wanna be able to make some money to keep your platform alive, but you don't wanna overstep the boundary in such a way that like, you, the content platform itself becomes kinda crappy and not very fun. And I think that's something that both Facebook and Google have like, really been experimenting a lot with to find out where that line is. And I think Facebook's kinda sucking at it right now to be honest. <laughs> I <quit. laughs> yeah, I quit. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm on board with flatting four bets. What's the case for open limping the button?
3: Oh, uh, I almost like open limping the button like way more than flooding 4-bits now, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, although flooding 4-bits in position can be pretty good if you have like a very, very, very good hand. Um, so the basic idea behind limping buttons is uh, not only... It's so, like once upon a time when you would raise the button, it was like kind of a deceptive thing. Like maybe uh, you have the nuts. People don't know what you have. Um, but nowadays we have like a ton of experience and stats. And so like when you raise the button, I know exactly what you have right it's like you have a whole bunch of garbage and occasionally <laughs> the nuts um and so it's no longer deceptive um and the real value that we get actually from generally raising with the most of our hands is the capability of bluffing somebody post-flop like essentially c-betting um you know how people used to c-bet all the time but now they kind of like don't see bet as much um it's because people stop folding right <laughs> um and so like the very idea that people like stopped folding on the flop or like after the flop and stuff kind of makes the whole idea of raising before the flop. Not so good. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that playing isn't good, um, but a few things, there's a few benefits from limping relative to raising. Number one, you play with way deeper stacks in position. So that's great. Um, That's obviously like an inherent advantage. Number two, which is my favorite part is that people have no idea what the hell you're doing. (laughs) They have this really, really hard problem ranging you. And actually, I played in um I played in a, a shootout uh, tournament at the World Series this year, and it was down to three-handed with me and two other people, who were both like pretty good tourney regs, um, young guys and stuff. And I lost a big flip, and I was like pretty short, and so I just started limping every button, right? Or like limping a lot of buttons. And one time I limped a button with like Queen Deuce suited, and the flop came down like Ace King Jack, and it like. Checked to me and I bet and like one of the guys called and turn card was a 10 and the guy paid off like two streets like turn and river with an ace because he's just like I can't imagine you limping a queen <laughs> like I can't imagine how you could ever have a queen here he's like talking out loud he's a really smart guy and he's just like I don't understand and so I call that's
2: weird um, I, I I limped the button one time in the world series this year and I had a queen so you know it's it's 100 percent for me
3: yeah <laughs> great strategy um But so then, then you could open up a whole other range of things, which is like, you know, people have a lot of experience dealing with like the button raise versus a blind defense. Like they, they know what they're doing, but they have virtually no experience against a button limp re-raise. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and so like putting somebody in that context where they like, they just have no idea what the hell is going on and you actually have a decent idea of what's going on, um, puts you at a pretty massive advantage. Now the biggest downside to it is like just the way the rake structure works a lot where they rake like basically pots that see a flop, but they don't rake like, uh, take it down stuff. But I actually still am pretty confident that the advantage you get, especially in turns and rivers from limping pre-flop is so big. Oh, I left that one of my favorite advantages, which is like, let's say that you limp something pretty good. Like let's say King queen and somebody checks with like queen three pretty common scenario. Um, like, they have to learn how to play with pot pair with queen three. They've never done that before. You know what I mean? Like, no, one has, no one's playing queen three from the blinds to a raise normally. So, like, when the flop comes down, like, queen nine four against a button limper, and they, the button limper just starts potting it, like, what do you do?
0: Uh, you get, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm. And I'm... so there's
3: there's a lot of mistakes that someone can make, uh, especially on big bet streets, there caused by by mixing in like a limp on the button.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you're 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 preaching to the choir here because this is uh pu- putting your opponents in unfamiliar situations. This is a, a brokos mantra. And in fact, uh, Andrew and I were talking with some some strong players around World Series time who uh, precisely about how limping in late position and on the button can be just fine. And and so I. Hey, I'm sure you remember this conversation. We're we're, we're on about yeah. this, right, Andrew? Um, Andrew, I'm not Andrew sure B. I do remember this actually. Oh, uh, sorry, it happened. I promise. Okay.
3: <laughs> I had some I great conversations on this point in the Run at Once Lounge. To be honest, um, just like a lot of really interesting opinions about it. Um, I mean, my, my biggest thing too is for people who are like, oh, you're just you really need to steal the blinds, but like you can also steal those later. <laughs> like they're still gonna be there. They're not, they're like in the pot still. So if somebody has like the eight three. The vast majority of the time, you're just going to still steal those blinds anyway. And the times when he makes a pair of eights and beats you and wins the pot is pretty negligible, especially compared with the times when he makes a pair of eights and is, does not have the best hand okay. and loses a big pot. How
0: specific do you think this is to playing against pretty good opponents? Because I think what you're saying about people not overfolding is true of like run-at-once members. Um, and and I still think a lot of people do overfold their big blind to to button raises, or if they don't, they overfold the C-Bets.
3: Yeah. Um, so what I would say is it's primarily only really useful against extremely aggressive players, whether or not they are really good or not is kind of a different question. Um, so like even like a very aggressive, like maniac monkey fish might be a great candidate to limp a lot of hands on the button against, Mm -hmm. because it's going to be no problem getting money in post-flop. Right right but like everyone who's tried to see bet against a monkey fish knows it's like the worst feeling of all time <laughs> like when you you raise like you raise like king queen and you're like yeah let's do this and the flock comes down like 10 8 4 and you're like ah. <laughs> like like do i just bet and just know that i'm going to get check raised and then you bet and then just you just get check raised and you're like ah. <laughs> And then like part of you just wants to jam it in there, and you just know you're gonna get called by five four offsuit and get stacked. <laughs> and you're just like, this is the worst. I hate it all. Um, so against a, really a, basically against anyone who's not very likely to fold on the flop, this is good, right? Against a lot of players who are not as strong, who are especially passive players. Like any passive, uh, like weak bad passive player, would be a perfect person to raise against. Like you'd want to raise probably a hundred percent of your range against that person. Um, you know, and maybe like kind of a weaker, not very aggressive, regular kind of same kind of deal. Um, but against people who are like in that squarely not folding category, uh, you can run into a lot of trouble trying to raise and take it against a guy who's never going to let you raise and take it.
0: I have another question for you that is, is pretty specific to playing with a, a certain group of players. Um, and it concerns, there. there's a line from your book, and I'm afraid this is going to seem like a cheap shot, because the the line I think, well, so the quote is, Value betting is, was, and always will be the best way to make money. And so I think, obviously, a, a quote like that is, like, you can you can quibble with anything that has the word always in there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about, uh, and I don't know if you have much experience in these games, but, like, since Black Friday, I've been playing in a decent number of games. Um, kind of like mid stakes live games that play pretty deep so you know five ten games with uncapped buy-ins or 10 25 sure, games sure, sure. with uncapped buy-ins and i'm actually not sure that that's true of those games um, i'm curious whether you have much experience in those games and, and if so what you think about
3: that yeah so i i play uh when i'm down here in san francisco there's actually some pretty decent five ten even 10 and a quarter games that go on down here but where, where is that by um, the way
0: at lucky chances
3: uh, lucky chances does 510 matrix casino runs a 10 and a quarter oftentimes like three tables of it um and you can actually find like um isaac baron plays there a lot um and a fair amount of other like pretty good players but there's like a lot of random silicon valley money that's just playing there which is kind of fun okay. um basically my first of all my thought about that quote in general is that that quote is basically trying to talk about um just on a on a macro level poker in general right. um Not only do uh, you just get a better deal from value betting than you do from bluffing, like when you're when you're bluffing, let's say you make a pot size bluff, right? You're risking the size of the pot yourself, and the most you can possibly win from it is like equivalent to your bet. Mm. Whereas if you're value betting with a pot size bet, like... You can either win the whole pot, or you can win two times the pot, <laughs> right. which is like just in, first of all on its face just a better deal. Like it should mean that value betting should be like more incentivized than bluffing should. Then you combine that with the fact that like just as a default human nature, people hate folding. There's a reason why like when you beat when you play against a new player, ninety nine percent of the time, if not a hundred, your strategy is just to value bet the hell out of them, mm-hmm. especially on turns and rivers, um, and it's because like as a default, almost every human being is like, starts off that way being like, I hate folding. I don't like being taken advantage of. Okay. I'll pay. Um, and so there are definitely games in which bluffing might actually be better just because it's like, so actually, I'll give a quick spoiler for my tournament book in tournaments. The opposite is true in tournaments, value betting pretty much sucks and bluffing is just the best. Um, and so In context, it changes. But in general, if you were to say like, what is the key to beating poker? I would be like, value bet a lot, fold when they raise, stop bluffing the turn in the river. Yeah, I definitely agree with <laughs> that. That would be, that would be like my, my blanket default advice. But, you know, I
0: I, I, I do agree with, with all that. I mean, on, on a theoretical level, I, I just feel like in those games specifically, I have, I have a friend who says that um, when a lot of the regulars in those games have, you know, 300 plus big blind stacks, those stacks just gather dust. I and mean, it's just impossible for the for the last of their money to, to go in there without the nuts. And um, I feel like no matter how much of an aggressive image I have, have, I still like my big value bets don't get paid in those uh, against those players.
3: Well, so one thing I can mention about live in this context, um, and this a little trick that I like. I like to think that I picked up from watching Cole play, or playing against Cole, or getting crushed by Cole, um, is basically when um, you can actually make a relatively like zero EV at worst, like slightly negative EV play uh, if it's memorable. Um, so basically in a live game, especially where you're going to be playing with a lot of the same people in future sessions, um, you might run like a really random pre-flop three bet, like a really random one, you know, like the, the Jack four suited type of thing and just plan on showing it kind of, no matter what happens, hmm. <laughs> right? If you get the showdown, you obviously show it. If you don't get the showdown, like you show it for sure. If you, if you win the pot, um, basically like. Doing some, some relatively inexpensive advertising, especially in those massively deep games, can usually be, like, a great idea. You're right. It is kind of hard to get someone to put in, like, 300 big blinds unless it's a straight, brutal cooler. Um, and bluffing can be very, very effective. Uh, the one thing I would say is there's a big difference between trying to move someone off of, like, a strong maid hand and trying to move someone off of, like, air stuff. Um, even, in, even in live games, people have a very hard time folding premiums type of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but I, I would say like my, my default would be like splash around a ton in the little stuff, make everyone think like, damn, this guy just raises every pot what a crazy person. But then, you know, kind of like play it like old poker where you just do that a lot. And then the turns and rivers, you're like, oh, here's a pot size bed. I guess I'm bluffing. Like, (laughs) oh, you called like, I guess I'm all in as an overbet. Like, oh no. Where, you know, you pretty much always just have it. Mm -hmm. Now that said, one of my really good friends down here uh, is a poker player who plays a lot of live games, bluffs like an insane person. And I think he's, like, relatively successful and effective at it. But I routinely find him, like, doing things that, like, I would not do. And I kind of would be surprised if they're too good in general. Um, but it's it's also kind of hard to say just because the samples are way smaller.
0: Th- that's sort of what I wonder about is, is just whether I could be getting away with a lot more bluffing. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm being pretty maniacal and people t- t- treat me as though I'm being pretty maniacal. But not in a way that involves them calling down. Like,
3: (laughs) well, so, so let me put it this way during the, during the millionaire maker this, uh, this summer, um, I like late in day three, maybe day two, if you're one of the late days, um, two different people folded, uh, Queens and Jacks respectively pre-flop after three betting me with under 40 big blind stacks correctly right. <laughs> <laughs> against me. Right. And I wanted to shoot myself because I was like, there's literally, I was like, at one point I was like, all right, I have aces. And this guy who never bluffs ever just put in like a big three bet. Like, this is great. Like, I'm all in, and he's like, "Oh well, I got queens." Just pitches him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, "Holy shit!" And then I then I think back to like my friend Vanessa, and just like Vanessa would be in this exact same situation with like Ace three, and would be like, "This guy's got queens. There's no way he's coming. just <laughs> <laughs> like shivin' in. <laughs> this is Vanessa Selbst, right? Yeah, yeah. Vanessa. I mean, Vanessa Selbst is like, I think, you know. I actually think she's you can make a decent argument for her being like a top three tournament player in the world. Um, Honestly, in terms of just live tournaments, you might even give her like the number one spot.
2: Yeah, Um, she's very, very good at
3: those. (laughs) uh, But like, I don't know. that that's necessarily because she's like totally as theoretically solid and sound as someone like Dan Smith, who is also like in that top three position to me. But because she just scares the living shit out of people, (laughs) people, people (laughs) fold her all the time. Um, and I've told this story before. My favorite Vanessa story is Vanessa bluffed me out of like a massive pot in Australia once. And um, afterward, I, and she showed, of course, and after I told her, I was like, listen, Vanessa, I'm never going to fault you again. They're just promising you right now, like I'm never going to fault you. <laughs> and instead of doing like the sane, logical thing, which would be like, all right, well, I'm just going to stop bluffing you then. She just looks at me and says, yeah, you will. <laughs> 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 And, you know, that's that's a mentality that I think works amazingly in tournaments and better in live than online for sure. But I would be very hesitant to try to basically try that maniacal bluffing in online cash and still pretty hesitant in live cash.
2: Yeah, I mean, so Vanessa is also the first person I ever saw try like the suicide bluff, right, where I think there was forty five dollars in the pot and somebody bet twenty dollars on the river and she moved in for like $26. I mean, she got called, right? But like, I
1: mean, but like,
2: but, but, but she was, I mean, I, I'd never seen anybody try that before and I can name like 12 other things that Vanessa was the first, like either the first person I ever saw try it or the only person I've ever seen try it. You know, I mean, that's, uh,
3: Hey, when uh, the price is right, I try, I tried it a lot. I mean, the truth is that if you, if it ever works, like from time to time, if it works, it's worth so much money. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's, she's got a little bit of a screw loose. She, she, like, swept me one time during a tournament, and she was like, You know, I think I raised ace nine, and the like a sticky regular call, and the flop came down like 10, 8, 4. And I was like, All right, I'm just going to give up. Like, I'm out of position. This kind of sucks. And she's like, Oh, I would have probably bet flop, bet turn, and check raise river all <laughs> in. just like, Okay, well, we are starting from a different point of view then. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I remember watching, like, Ben Lamb folded the two card flush to her. She pulled like essentially like a pretty suicide bluff against Ben Lamb in the World Series like two years ago. Like pretty deep in the money, where Ben Lamb had Jack Ten of Diamonds and the board was like seven, six, six, and Vanessa had A seven of clubs. And he bet and she called and the turn card was the king of diamonds. And he bet and she called. And the river card was like a jack offsuit. And he bet with his two card Jack High flush. And Vanessa just piled it in on the river with the seven blocker. <laughs> and he folded. And like this is a guy who's one of the best players in the world and Ben Lamb, who also knows who Vanessa is, and he still folds stuff like this. Um so there's a lot of power to be had in just being the person who bluffs in, in tournaments especially. Yeah. But I mean that you'll admit the spot sucks,
2: right? Like with a jack high flush there. I mean, I guess you... Vanessa,
3: no, so spot is like amazing. I'm like, as soon as I hit the flush, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, what can I do to just give, get Vanessa to just give me all of her chips right now? All right. <laughs> like probably bet and then not fold or maybe check and then not fold. But, but like at no point am I folding no matter what, like really, if I'm going to make a two card flush and Vanessa selves is going to make a two card full house. Uh, oh my God. Oh, well, whatever, <laughs> like tough, tough life. So, Fair enough. Like, that. <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, like I got uh, another really, really good tournament player who's kind of in the same mold as like Paul G's, Paul Volp. Um, and I busted the the uh, shooting star, Bay 1 on shooting star last year where I like picked up ace queen suited against him. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> and obviously it's not aces like you can't ask for aces. Um, You might ask for aces if you're playing against a super nitty guy, but if you're playing against a guy like that, like I raise and he three bets and I'm like, oh, my God, what can I do to get all this money? (laughs) It's like, I guess I'll four bet. It's like, oh, my God, he five (laughs) bet. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to flatten trap right now. Um, (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's a big difference between cash and, and tournaments also, because players like that, they can't. Generally, do the same style. Like Vanessa can't just do that in in cash in general, because someone's just going to be like, "Well, I'll just reload if I lose," and then they'll be right.
0: <laughs> yeah, she can't strike the same the same terror in their hearts.
3: Yeah, exactly, and that's why I think like, and I I love Vanessa a lot, but I think that's why like some of the the giant cash game like televised cash game ones like the Big Game and stuff like that, um, you know, she's she's gotten called down a lot, um, and I think it's because. People are just less scared when their tournament life's not on the line, and um, especially when you're you know, you're, you're putting it in against some super rich businessman. He's just like, well, I've got two pair, <laughs> so I'm never folding. But that said, I mean, as far as tournament results and just like general quality of tournament play, um, people talk a lot of trash about Vanessa, and she, she keeps winning tournaments. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Well,
0: you mentioned uh, for your top three, uh, Vanessa and Dan Smith. Who are the other candidates?
3: I think you obviously have to put Phil Ivy in there like he's Phil fucking Ivy. <laughs> um, honestly, I think you also have to put Phil Helmuth and Negreanu in there. Um, granted, they both play a, a gajillion tournaments, but, um, they are, they're sneaky good. You know, they're like, people don't look at them the same way as they look at, at like an, uh, an online tournament player or like, you know, like a famous young online guy. But the truth is that Phil Helmuth is a, like a psycho aggressive most of the time. And, uh, Daniel Negreanu, like, I remember this, this, like a ton of respect for Daniel from this. He went on two plus two a long time ago and posted some hands and got like reamed. All the good players were like, this belongs in small stakes. Like these are, these are terrible. And instead of getting really defensive and being like, fuck you guys, I'm Daniel Negreanu. He hired a bunch of the best players as like poker coaches. They like moved in with him and he worked on his game a ton. So any, like, there's this recent bet that Daniel Griner saying he could beat like high stakes something or other, like high stakes cash, something like that online. Like, I probably think he could, um, provided that he wasn't playing too many tables and that he was, had a reasonable time to do it because he's, he works insanely hard on his game. Mm. Um, he takes it really seriously. I mean, he's also is just a he's like kind of the opposite. He's the anti Vanessa in a sense. Like Vanessa will terrify people into doing what she wants, and Daniel will just ask them. <laughs> <laughs> He'll just be like, "Hey, I think you should check back right now. Let's just have a good time." And someone's like, "Yeah, I like this guy. All right, I'll check back." <laughs> Daniel's like, "I've got third pair," and they're like, "Oh, that's good."
0: <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Of, of the people you mentioned, I think the four of the five have some sort of meta effect. Like obviously, playing with Phil Ivy and Phil Helmuth has meta effects on people too where like their image just precedes them to the table um i don't know that i've ever played with dan smith but i don't get the sense that he has that same um that same image am i wrong about that uh i
3: I don't think he's i mean he's certainly not like the kind of person who's going to launch into like a ton of table talk or or something like that um i think that just theoretically he's probably the most advanced player in terms of tournament play in the world Mm -hmm. would be my guess um but there's also, I mean, there's there's a big list of amazing tournament players, some of whom I know, like, pretty well, some of whom I don't know at all. Like, I know like, Scott Siever is an amazing player. Uh, there's a whole host of Germans who are unreal good. Um, you know, like, I, I posted on my, my blog about the uh, the Scott Siever hand uh, against uh, Tobias Rinkenmeier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually think that Ringemeyer like, plays the hand very well. Um, granted like, you know, he got a little bit embarrassed in a million dollar buy-in tournament on television, (laughs) but like his, he, he plays the hand in a way that like, if Scott's hand was queen Jack or was a flush, which it is a large portion of the time there, or if, you know, Scott's hand was like ten nine with a club or something like that. Um, you know, he looks like really good, right. He makes like a really good choice. And I think that in general against Scott's range, unless Scott is really going insane, which I kind of doubted at that tournament, um, I think he plays the hand like really well. So there's a lot of Germans like that who are who are insanely good. Pretty much everyone who's on the the regular 100k high roller tour, you gotta be, you gotta be pretty good at poker to be playing, you know, n- not just like a 100k, but like many 100k bit. tournaments. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's there's a lot of people who are in there, but um, it's. It's like, I know you can't be results oriented, but when you've been doing it for a very long time, and, uh, you know, and it's always just the same story. Like, you just show up at the, like, Vanessa showed up at the final table with, like, 80% of the chips in play, and you just know it's going to happen. <laughs> it's like, she just has, starts at such a big advantage. And actually, she following or, like, watching her was, is basically the found, original foundation for me starting to learn tournaments and writing this book. I want to figure out why people like Vanessa, um, who are like both theoretically sound and also like hyper hyper aggressive why they tend to do so much better than the very strong cash players who cross over to tournaments um like you like i was one of those and we min cash a lot it's (laughs) it's the the deal like you pretty much just min cash a lot and uh i wanted to know why that was and i i came to some i guess pretty dramatic conclusions after like running a bunch of numbers and stuff
0: uh, if, if you can accomplish that with your book, I'm sure it'll sell very well.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, there's, it's also easier said than done, right? Like I, uh, although to be honest, I, this, this summer was the first summer that I, uh, have really put it into practice, like this new theory stuff. And I almost banked the millionaire maker and I cashed in another term. I think I was like two for nine or something. Mm. So I was like, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not bad. Uh, I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was like one. I was like basically two or three like tough hands away from being a final tableist at the Millionaire Maker, and I think this stuff really works.
0: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think it's it's definitely the right question to ask. And I mean, because there have been so many tournament books written already, but that sounds like a, a sort of different approach to it rather than just like, here's the stuff this that be, I.
3: <laughs> this would be a different tournament book. So far, it is a different tournament book than uh, than anything that I've ever seen. Um, a lot of people are going to say that I'm a total psycho, <laughs> but uh it's i think that the math uh the math just generally tends to indicate that you're losing your ships lose value much more quickly than you think they do nice um that so the everyone who's just degenning it up and gambling is actually putting themselves in a position to win whereas everyone who's like playing good solid poker is just like they're running a losing race essentially
0: (laughs) Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we let you go
3: no uh, if you guys have any questions feel free to throw them out otherwise it's been fun
2: yeah, thanks. It, so you have a book coming up, you have a blog,
3: anything else you want to plug? Um, I mean, still making videos to do some cracks, they're pretty fun. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I just launched my, my brand new blog, I actually retired my old blog, which used to be belugabay.com. Now um, all my new posts are just going on andrewsideman.com where I'm writing about all kinds of random other stuff. So um, if you if you want to drop by and, and read it, it'd be cool. All
2: right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Good. Good stuff. I appreciate it. And
3: thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Safe travel.